Thank you, David. Appreciated that worship time. Uh, good morning. I'm Steve Coleman, a member of the teaching team here at New Hope Chapel. I welcome you here today. Excited to see you all. Uh, this morning, we're going to continue our study in the book of Mark. Have, have you ever been confronted with a truth that changed everything? Your perspective was altered after the experience. It could have been a big shock like a cancer diagnosis or perhaps a smaller thing like something you said that you wished you could take back. Well, in 1991, 32-year-old Magic Johnson encountered a sobering truth. He was at the top of his game about to start his 13th season in the NBA. He is married to his longtime girlfriend, Cookie, and in September that year, they were expecting a baby. The couple was overjoyed, but a call from the L.A. Lakers team doctor changed everything. He was HIV positive. When Johnson walked through his front door after getting that diagnosis, Cookie knew something was wrong. I just sat her down and began to tell her I had HIV. I told her, I can understand if you want to leave me because I'm now turning your life upside down, he says. And she smacked me upside the head and said, that was the quote, we're going to beat this together. Let's get on our knees and pray. And that's what we did. Big or small, you have had to deal with truths that have made you rethink your life at some level. You've adjusted your view of your world. Maybe you were in denial and didn't change, at least for a while. Well, in this morning's section of text, Mark continues to reveal life-changing truths that we need to adjust to. But before we go any further, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the chance to look at your word Thank you for your Holy Spirit guides us. Pray for his work this morning in all of our hearts as we hear your word. Please uh, get me out of the way so that your words will come through in your name. Amen. If you have your Bible, turn with me to the end of Mark chapter 2. I want you to think while we read. I'm going to ask you at the end of our reading to vote on what you think Mark might be trying to emphasize. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are you doing what is why look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need? He and his companions became hungry, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the son of man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He returned, entered again into a synagogue and a man was there whose hand was withered. They were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. After looking around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. 
and he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. All right. What do you think Mark is emphasizing in the text? Multiple choice. Uh, So let me see the hands of people who think his uh, emphasis is something about Jesus. Okay. The A's are the safe bet people. They've learned that 70% of answers in Sunday school is Jesus. How about those that think it's something about the Sabbath? All right, the bees don't want to get caught overlooking the obvious. How about C, something about the Pharisees? Let me see your hands. Well, these are the action people. The thing climaxes with the Pharisees plotting to kill Jesus. You know, this was kind of a trick question because, in a sense, you all are right. You might have suspected that. But, you know, there's even more that Mark has in mind for us than just these three things. As I was studying these verses, I noticed what a difference the context made as you looked at this. There were, there were layers of context. And, you know, that's one of the key tools in Bible study is, yeah, you're looking at words and sentences. You're figuring out what is being said here. You're observing it. Uh, what did it mean to the people that heard it? But there's also, beyond that uh, clarity, but why are the narratives and dialogues and teachings here? What difference does the context make? Well, let me show you why context matters. If I asked you what the significance of our location was, where we are located right now, and I put up the following map. That's the New Hope Chapel property. So we might say, well, we're attending the service. We're part of the New Hope Chapel family. And you certainly are that even if you're visiting with us here today. We consider everybody that comes and attends part of the New Hope Chapel family. If I had this map up, well, we've zoomed out a little to the neighborhood of the church, Maga Vista. Certainly, Now, because of the context, we see it as a place we want to lift up Jesus' name and positively impact those that are living around us. If we look from the state of Maryland's perspective, your thoughts might run to our responsibilities as residents to pay taxes and to vote. Or you may be thinking we we get to live in the Chesapeake Bay area with the best boating, blue crabs, and eastern oysters you'll ever find. Finally, we zoom out about as far as we can, and you say, well, gee, our location is Earth, and we live on a pretty small ball in comparison to the rest of the universe. And you know, that tells us more about God than it really tells us about ourselves. So we see how context impacts these things, and we're going to be looking at several contextual layers. It's a great section of Mark for showing the impact of context, so we're just going to sort of walk through and and get insight into maybe this tool of Bible study. We're going to start zoomed in close so that we see and understand what is happening. Then we'll zoom out further and further to larger contexts. We start at the treetop level with a challenge by the Pharisees and the healing of a man with a withered hand. What happened was the Pharisees came to Jesus and said, look, Why are your disciples doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? 
let me give you a, a little insight on this. The disciples were not violating the law of Moses. There's nothing in the first five books of the Bible or any of the Bible that says you can't do what they were doing. In fact, it was customary at the time that people could, as they're passing by, if they're hungry, passing by a farmer's place, or they were poor, that they could glean some of the, the uh, produce from their neighbors. That's what living in the context of the nation of Israel was about. But anyway, they weren't violating the, uh, the Mosaic law, because that's pretty straightforward. The Sabbath laws were basically rest. You get to rest. And that rest includes not just you, but your animals and your servants that work for you. They were supposed to keep the day set apart, that is holy, from other common days. So it was supposed to be a different day from that standpoint. Uh, Moses in Deuteronomy also says they weren't to light fires on that day in their house. Well, what the Pharisees were referring to when they said not lawful is the oral law. The rules they, in their enthusiasm, had made up over the decades and centuries to guide the people in obeying the law. They had lots of rules that a good Israelite would follow in order to keep the Sabbath. I'm doing it because I'm following all the rules. They viewed these rules as having the same weight as law. It was these rules the disciples broke. Well, what did Jesus say? He said, have you ever read what David did and was in need? And his companions went and ate the consecrated bread. You know, this is a typical rabbinic response. You see, he asked a question. That's what the rabbis would do. They would discuss. And it's, a, it's quite an art form to discuss issues by one person asking a question, the other person asking a question in response to that, which showed, yes, I understand exactly what you're talking about. Look at this point. So what was Jesus doing here? Why did he refer to this story? Because it fits so well with the point he was making. It was the perfect rabbinical response. Note the comparison between the disciples and what David did. David was highly revered by the, by the Pharisees, and Israel, because he sort of represented the high watermark of the, uh, the glory of the nation. He and his, the first part of his son Solomon's reign. So he's got a story here that talks about David and his companions. And this matches up very well with the criticism coming. Hey, why are your disciples violating the law? Well, David's companions were hungry. The disciples were hungry. David gave the consecrated bread to his companions to eat. That's what is emphasized in the question. And in the case of the disciples, they had grabbed and, and eaten handfuls of grain from a field. We come to one of the differences. Eating the consecrated bread was against God's direct command. He said this should only be eaten by the priest. It's in Leviticus 23.9. So David did violate Mosaic law. The disciples didn't. They only violated the Pharisees' rules. So he's pointing to a case that was worse, that had a bigger problem. And you know the other difference is God never criticized David for doing this. 
the great hero of Israel, and God never criticized him for violating this law or this command. And so here's the answer Jesus says, okay, have you ever considered David who broke Moses' law, the command, and God never criticized him because his companions were hungry? Now, David was on the run from Saul in fear of his life, and he went by the tabernacle and actually made up a story in order to get this consecrated bread. So it was an urgent matter to eat. Well, Jesus said for to them then, in conclusion, the Sabbath was made for people. People were not made for the Sabbath. And then this quote, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. It's, it's an awkward sentence for us because uh, in, the, in the Greek, it's, uh, the Sabbath was made for man. It says in our English Bibles, that word man is the word anthropos, which really means human beings. So it's, uh, it's not about men, it's about human beings. But the Sabbath was made for human beings, looked a little awkward, so I put people, just because I wanted to make sure there was clarity. Now we have another little challenge, and that is, because Jesus says the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Well, that's uh, Hurios, son, and Anthropone, human being. So Jesus is saying the Son of human beings, the Son of a per- people, is Lord of the Sabbath. Now that title is used, and David pointed this out in, in Daniel chapter 7. Uh, it's also used over a hundred times in the Old Testament in a non-Messianic sense. But this title, I spent a few hours kind of working through this title, and I didn't get to where I wanted to be, to, to a conclusion. Uh, certainly, Jesus is using it in the sense that I am the one. I'm the Messiah. Um, Part of what gets confusing is this is a Hebrew idiom. I know this is written in Greek, but it's it's from the Hebrew mindset. And for the Hebrews to say you're son of something means you are that thing in its fullest sense. So we have a guy in Acts called Barnabas. And um, actually his name seems to come from Aramaic. The bar is son of. Barnabas, son of encouragement. So by naming him that, uh, maybe it wasn't his given name in childhood, but it's like what they called him, but he, he was encouragement personified. Maybe in our vernacular we'd say, there goes Mr. Encouragement. You know, that's kind of how we say, this, he's, he's fully that thing. So, um, so this title, Son of Man, means fully human. So in Romans, Paul talks about the first Adam and the failure in the garden. And he talks about Christ being the second Adam. So maybe it's in that sense. I'm not sure. I didn't get to a conclusion. It's a title Jesus uses for himself a number of times in the New Testament. It's used in that Daniel passage. And he's probably picking it up from there and using this as a messianic sense. But that's something I want to figure out one day is what this son of man kind of how that works with, because it was a common thing to say. Um, there's, a, there's a proverb that talks about the son of wickedness, so and so on. And again, it's saying, man, if anybody's wicked, it's this guy. That's how this um, son of God is a claim to being God. You're fully God. Anyway, so that's what, that's what Jesus says here in response. 
up. Well, here's what the Pharisees got so wrong. The Sabbath was intended to be a blessing to humankind. And instead, they saw this rule, and they, got, they created rules for people to follow, and keeping the rules over the years became the goal, rather, instead of keeping people's focus on God and the blessing He was providing through the Sabbath. We see that in our own day, in our own lives, that we, we, we look on the outward, we look on achievement, what, what happens, and we sort of end up turning this into a religion. We're not, we're not participating in a religion here because a religion is doing all the right things, and that focuses on we're doing the right things. What we're here about is a relationship, and we focus on Jesus Christ because it's about Him and the relationship He's chosen to have with us. Okay, uh, the second um, event that was part of this. So what happens next is Jesus goes into uh, the synagogue, and there is a man there who has a withered hand. And so what the, the Pharisees do, they sat there wanting to catch Jesus healing on the Sabbath, so they could accuse him. They only had that one thought in their mind. Well, Jesus called the man to the front, right to the middle, where everybody could see, and he asked them, it says in the text, well, who's the them? That's the Pharisees sitting there waiting to accuse him. And he asked them, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to kill? We know this is a couplet. It, it, and it looks a lot like the way Psalms and Proverbs are and the other places where poetry is. I don't know if it was intended to be poetic, but it's certainly set up the same way. Two sentences which are parallel to each other, communicating the same kind of thing. So what he's really, really doing is, is equating doing good with saving a life and doing harm with death. At least each of those things are... The first pair is in a category, the second pair is in a category. Good, bad. And what he's really doing in asking the question is asking them to, yes, to judge what is going to happen with this man's withered hand, but it's also a challenge to them, a choice that he's setting before them. Are you going to choose good? Are you going to choose life? Or are you going to choose harm and death? Rabbinic question again. What are you going to do? No response from the Pharisees. After looking around at them in anger, it says, grieved at the hardness of their heart, Jesus went ahead and healed the man. He's grieving for their hard hearts. And the anger that's referenced there, angry, grieved at their hard hearts, speculation, but I think he's grieved at that the damage sin is doing, has done, and it continues to do in their lives, this hard heart. And he's angry because the Pharisees represent here sort of the epitome of hypocrisy. Because you see, they didn't answer the question. Jesus healed. And because Jesus did good on the Sabbath, the Pharisees went out, the Bible says, immediately began to plot his death. So on this very day that they said, no, this is a set-apart day. You can't heal on the Sabbath. 
They're going out and on this same day getting together and plotting his death, plotting someone's death. Is it lawful to kill on the Sabbath? No, it's not. But they did it. They did the planning of it. So caught in a hypocrisy, they had a choice when he said that. They could have, well, let's rethink for a minute. But they were just bound and determined to head that direction. Again, a perfect rabbinic kind of situation in that challenge and and an opportunity for them. It's hypocrisy that God, you see God getting really angry at in Scripture's. Well, going up a level in the context, we can look at these two incidents in light of the theme of the Sabbath. We could say, well, look, we have a context here of the role of the law in Jesus' ministry, the years that he was on this planet, and even in the church age. We could. We're not going to this morning because we don't have time to do that. So we're going to skip that level, but there's some good things that come out of looking at it. I know that I found... And we're going to go to the, the next level of context. And that is the five confrontations with the Pharisees and teachers of the law. You know, there's a change that goes on in the book of Mark from chapter 1 uh, to the beginning of chapter 2. David gave us a message beginning of chapter 2 on the healing of the paralytic. And up until then, Jesus had done miracles but there was no real mention of opposition to any of those healings. And, you know, after our incident of the healing of the man with the withered hand, Jesus soon turns to the task of selecting the 12 apostles, and other things go on. So between chapter, uh, chapter 2-1, the healing of the paralytic man, down through our healing of the withered hand... We have opposition, 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 opposition. And that's a clump, I think, to me. And I think we can can show that and talk about it. It's a context that we need to see. The five incidents are the healing of the paralytic, eating with tax collectors and sinners. There was the question on fasting. Uh, Julie had those two, eating with tax collectors and, and fasting. She did those last week. And then this week we have working on the Sabbath, the disciples working, violating the law, and the man with the withered hand. Five incidents, one after another, each one involving the, um, the leaders, the Pharisees. So let's look at the middle one because there's a unique thing with this one, which is why I arrayed them this way. There was this question about fasting. And what Jesus does is take this moment to emphasize what he'd been preaching in chapter 1 about the new kingdom. There's this new upside-down kingdom of God that's coming. And it's so different that, you remember, remember what the metaphor was? You can't put new wine into old wineskins. So this isn't just like a tweak on the practice of Judaism that's been going on for the last 500 years in Israel and longer. But it, it is, this is new. It's not going to fit in the old paradigm. The old structures of your thinking, it's not going to like fit in right. You have to, okay, we've we got we to rethink this structure. We've got to realign our minds. 
And that's what Jesus has been talking about, and we'll continue to see this in the book of Mark. It's grace, not merit. It's not following law. It's grace. It's forgiveness. It's inward. It's not outward. It's about a transformation of heart that was actually promised in the book of uh, Jeremiah. Uh, Not outward, conforming to the law, conforming to the distinctives of this uh, Israelite community. It's going to be thrown open to Gentiles in a much broader way than it was before. And then um, the greatest command in this is love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and your strength. Instead of five books, God, uh, Jesus says you can sum those up. And for, the, for, for this new kingdom, these, this command works just as well. So, um, so that's, uh, we see it's bookended here. The first one and the fifth one are about um, healings. Pharisees are present, but they're silent in both of these. We'll talk about it just a little bit more, uh, more in just a little minute. Uh, and then in these uh, other two, number two and number four, this is where the Pharisees came up and said, hey, your disciples are, uh, are violating the law by eating on the Sabbath. Hey, Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners. No respectable rabbi should be doing that. And in each case, there is this, um, this back and forth where Jesus uh, proves that, hey, I'm God, and I, I understand things way better than you, and he points out their flaw in each case. So um, you can see Jesus trying to work with these Pharisees in these two, two and four. They're trying to outmaneuver him, and he's got the answers. And then finally, back down to these miracles, in both of them, the Pharisees are silent. They're silent in the first one, where the healing of the man who's lowered through the roof, the paralytic, and Jesus says, my son, your sins are forgiven. And it says the Pharisees thought to themselves, the teachers of the law, who is it, what's this guy saying? Who can forgive sins but God? You know, why is he saying this blasphemy? And then Jesus answers those questions that don't get asked, uh, by talking. And then it's interesting that this very last incident, the same thing happens. Although the Pharisees are sitting there saying, all right, get ready, because if he heals, we're going to take that down and make that an accusation against him. They're silent as the miracles go on. They start, I don't know that the questions were necessarily honest. They were, they were outraged, but they were asking a question, who can forgive sins but God? Well, yeah, that's right. That's who's forgiving these sins here. At the end, there's no questioning. It's like, we're waiting so we can accuse him, and then we're going to destroy this guy. So it's an interesting package that we have. You know, the last layer of context that we're going to look at this morning is the big picture of Mark's message. Mark's message is the big reveal. He is, is bringing to his readers, look, here is Jesus. Here he is. And so let's, in taking a look at the context from Mark 1.1 to 3.6, what we find is he starts off in chapter 1 with a bang. 
This is Jesus, the Son of God. He was prophesied about. Uh, We have John the baptizer testifying about him. And God himself speaks from heaven to identify this man. Adding to the wonder, Jesus amazes people with his preaching about the kingdom of God. Uh, And saying the kingdom is near, and he also demonstrates his powers over disease and demons. After presenting this, Mark takes us then into these five encounters where he's challenged and he answers every challenge. Uh, If they had an honest question of who is this, he provides them with every sign necessary to realize this is the Son of God. So we've got, we've got, these, um, got these layers done, and we've looked at this section. So pulling it all together, what's the big reveal? Well, in gray, we've got two, uh, two that come from chapter 1. Uh, we've already had in earlier messages. Son of God's arrived with a new upside-down kingdom, and he has ultimate power over disease and demons. What we sort of pick up as we connect this section of five uh, confrontations with the Pharisees is nothing's going to stop Jesus. The disease and demons did in chapter 1, and the entire uh, brain trust of the Jewish religion aren't going to be able to. Nothing's stopping him. And number two, there's a choice between life and death. It's the very choice that he sort of offered those Pharisees that were sitting in there with their arms crossed. And the bottom line is, there is a choice between life and death. In four layers of context, Mark has made his case for his readers in the first century, perhaps hearing about Jesus for the first time, of who he is. And the only thing you can do is brace yourself for it and be open. Uh, we, also, we also are Mark's readers, too. He makes, Mark has made a case for Jesus for each one of us. And all that remains for us is to really confront this question of what are we going to do with Jesus today. You know, it's, it, this goes for whether you have never had a relationship with Jesus before, with God, and it's, it's an offer that's available to you. But in addition to that, it's not just for that. It's for everyday life for everybody, no matter how long they've known the Lord. Because, you know, we're plagued by things that draw our attention. We're lured by the world's things. We're lured by stuff that attracts us. We're lured by the thought that if I do this or get this, I'm borrowing this from the 10 o'clock Bible study, if we do this or get this, we'll be happy. We are lured by the thought of the comfortable. You know, one of my lures is that lure of the comfortable. So let me tell you that I am generally happy with my yard. It's a work under construction, but I'm kind of happy with it. I'm comfortable with it. My comfort choice is to get out and mow it about two weeks after Julie starts commenting on it and before she really gets frustrated with it because, listen, I'm all about the marriage. (laughs) 
But comfort is what one of my lures. What do we all long for? Unless we're faced with one of those reevaluation and perspective shifting moments I described at the beginning, I could be settling into an existence that really has divided interests. Committed to the Lord, but these, these lures are capturing my attention. But you know, God doesn't let us do that for long. And that's why sometimes these intruding events happen in our lives that make us stop and rethink. Because that's good for us and it keeps us from harm. That's life for us and it keeps us from death. He doesn't let us do it for long. You know, there's uh, one of the great blockbuster movies, Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. At At the end of the movie... There's an earthquake that destroys the chapel at Petra. And Indiana Jones ends up hanging on to the edge of broken flooring. Uh, And the chalice, the holy grail, that his father had spent his life looking for was just out of reach below. It was the ultimate prize for an archaeologist. Well, his father was above and urged his son to grab his hand and get pulled to safety. You can see in Indiana's eyes that he was mesmerized by the chalice. It was everything he wanted, and he was being drawn to go after it. His father commanded, Indiana! And then he said, let it go. Indiana turned away from the grail, reached for his father's hand. He chose to live and had a restored relationship with his father. You know, real strong metaphor of the choices that we face. There's so many things that we hold dear, and again, stealing from the 10 o'clock Bible study, it always, the Bible study always tends to talk about the things the message is going to have in it. But uh, anyway, in, in, uh, using, using that is there's a lot of things that we hold dear that we're not always as conscious of. And again, God works and We want God to work and illuminate those for us so we can see what the things are that stand between us and commitment to this relationship. Jesus longs for us to continue in relationship with Him, to consciously turn to Him, to choose good and not harm, life and not death. We know. we, We know in our heads. We know better is one day in His house than a thousand elsewhere. What we have to do is keep making that practical choice. He loves it when we come to Him and invite Him into our mind, our lives, our activities, and work. So I'd love to say we should do this daily, but really, we need to do that. Invite Him in to every part as we need Him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank You so much for Your Word Thank you that you are uh, our rescuer, that you've saved us from the power of sin and death, from its penalty. We pray that, that your words, that your love may be compelling to us today, and that um, we might allow you to have more of our lives. In your name, amen.